Hello, you're very welcome to All In, the brand new business show here on Joe, backed by AIB. Each week, we'll be going under the bonnet of business news and trends in the company of Ireland's most savvy and successful business people. This week, we're looking at the product process, from manufacturing and marketing, getting your product on the shelf, getting it off again, and everything else in between. And to discuss, we're joined by some product pros. We have the longtime skincare expert who decided to branch out with a range of her own. It's already on the shelves of Ireland's biggest retailers. It's the CEO and founder of The Skin Nerd, Jennifer Rock. And we have a man whose healthy frozen food range is dominating the freezer section of supermarkets in Ireland, the UK and the US. And he's plans for even more expansion thanks to a recent Series A raise of 18 million. It's the Strong Roots founder, Samuel Dennigan. And in the all-in trailblazer hot seat, we have a man whose company just recorded its 11th consecutive year of profits and is now eyeing up an IPO. It's prepaid financial services founder, Noel Morin. You won't want to miss that. And speaking of things you don't want to miss, maybe now's a good time to hit subscribe to get the full show on podcast or YouTube. You will, of course, find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, where our username is at allin underscore business. And you can contact us anytime on any platform with the hashtag allinbusiness. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. So Jennifer and Samuel, thanks so much for joining us here today to talk about products. To be honest, I'm not even sure where to start with this because the product process seems to be so mind-boggling from conception to design to branding, supply chain logistics. Who, who wants to start, I suppose? Um, actually, do you know what? I think we're going to start with you, Jennifer, because you are kind of right at the start of all this right now. Tell me about the decision to get involved in this in the first place and how it's all going so far. So for us, skincare has always been my passion. I suppose since I've been young, I've always had an interest. I suffered on my own skin. And then from an empowerment perspective and education perspective, I really wanted to allow others to feel good in their own skin. It sounds like a pun. It sounds like a cliche, but that's the reality. And then through my social media profile and then other parts of the business, I started to realise that end users, particularly females, just felt that the industry was saturated. There was too much marketing, too little education. They didn't know what to use. So in a time when we should have access to info, we actually had less. So by creating Skin Ingredients by Skincare Brand, it was ultimately a capsule skincare range that is easy peasy. You can understand who it's for, who it's not for, and it's bringing active ingredients to an accessible market. So it was seeing a niche and a void in the market through listening to our clients on a daily basis that I said, right, I have to do this. There, there's nothing out there that exists quite like this. So let me compile it and do it. And thankfully, it sold out what was predicted to take six months in six working days. So wow. now we're in a stage where we're trying to get ourselves back into a constant flow of stock, which was is really frustrating for our stockists, but it's a success in one way, but it's just trying to get ourselves back up on track. Well, six months in six days um, mm. obviously shows you you're doing something right. But as we know, a good product is uh, only half the battle or not even half the battle. It's the starting point. Um, for you, Samuel, I know a lot of your focus uh, has been on design from mm -hmm. the start and you have a design background. So yeah. tell me why you feel that design is the key to a good product and everything that comes thereafter. Sure. Um, well, the the purpose of design is is uh, to make things easier and more accessible. And to Jennifer's point, you know, the if you listen to the consumer, you'll end up with perfect design after multiple iterations of anything. Um, you know, ultimately, it's constant improvement, and that's no different with food or a brand that sits over food. 
Um, we felt that the existing um, players in the market weren't delivering what the consumer wanted. We listened to them and we designed a brand and a range around what they did want. And thankfully, you know, after I think we're about maybe 12 to 14 products deep at this stage, we've only had one or two where we didn't, um, you know, listen enough and had uh, had misses as opposed to hits. And once you have your product, once you've got your design down, once you're happy with it, wh- what happens thereafter? Well, I know what happens thereafter, but talk to me about that, what seems to be a grueling life cycle then of a process in terms of uh, finding the right retailers, negotiating your terms and conditions with them, getting your stuff on the shelf and off again. Mm-hmm. Uh, for both of you or either of you, what was that like? What is that like? It must be, I feel it must be very taxing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can only speak for for myself, but w- when we started off, uh, it was very much, you know, at the behest of retailers in our case. So we are we are not yet a direct-to-consumer brand, with the exception of a couple of our customers who go direct-to-consumer from their own websites. So the majority of our products... Um, uh, purchase comes from traditional bricks and mortar retail. Uh, you know, in Ireland, Dunn Stores, Super Value, Tesco, in the UK, uh, Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda, etc. The the cost of doing business with those type of businesses and the life cycle of products is incredibly tough. You are speaking to one person who often changes within the buying cycle. So you might have a really strong relationship with someone, something's just about to go on the shelf, and then it all disappears and it mightn't come up again for another couple of years. So there's a huge amount of perseverance and really not accepting no as an answer right from the get-go and that's pretty difficult when you've put you know all your eggs into one basket and you've gone all in and um you're trying to make something work and what about you jennifer similar experience or? for me it was about because education and having an accessible brand was the key i didn't want to pigeonhole myself into one sector so in skincare usually would be a department brand or a pharmacy brand or a salon brand or an online brand so because I wanted to be accessible, we actually decided to align ourselves with all. So instead of, example, my first product is distributed in 2,000 locations nationwide, I didn't want to have it everywhere. I didn't want it to be mass, let's say. So for skin ingredients, we decided we want 200 stockists as our cap. That's what we could supply, or we thought we could supply. We now can. And... We basically, very similar to what you said, Sam, it's going in, it's pitching yourself to the buyers, it's understanding you'll have a relationship with this person, but then the cycle will continue. So for me, it was just deciding what our channels were and then aligning ourselves with the distributors. So we are B2B and B2C. Mm. And B2C is, is probably the, an easier one, to be honest, because you have data that's your own, you can control it, you have insights, yeah. you can really learn who your consumer is, talk to them directly, um, and you can really learn from it and grow and pivot. But when it's at the mercy of a distributor, or Brent Thomas or Arnott's or whomever the chain of pharmacies are. You don't really get to know what's allowing it to sell, what they like. You don't get that feedback. And as we said with packaging, for me at this crucial early, suppose fetal stage, if you will, I need to understand what's coming back so I can change it Mm. to amend it, to improve it. So that's where the B to C element for me is is vital. But I suppose the counterpoint to that would be I understand totally the benefits of B B to C um, and that would make sense for you completely. But in terms of scaling, I mean, Samuel, how long did you spend 
in your car, driving to places yourself, stocking shelves, surely there's a benefit equally to going B2B and then you just have to worry about getting it to the super value, the Tesco, the Asda, and not to every single person who wants to buy it. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the one thing I would say about direct-to-consumer is that inside piece and it's now something that we have to go to external agencies to purchase that data, the Cantars, the Nielsens, etc. Mm -hmm. We have to go and seek that to understand our customer as well as, you know, word of mouth on the ground. For the first six months, we did literally, um, I was in one van and um, my one of my brand managers, Indira, was in another van with a driver because she couldn't drive. And we literally just used to cover 100 stores. And you were going in and because you were so hands on, you were learning exactly whether it was working and whether it wasn't working. You know, Dublin stores with sweet potato fries was very easy because people were used to those through, you know, TGIs and Eddie Rockets but country stores this was a total new concept for them and you know very very you know potato focused market so they just didn't know what to do with it or want it um, and then um, after six months we you know got into a deeper relationship with one of the retailers where they physically distributed the product and actually for the first three months of that relationship we actually saw uh, a decline because we weren't okay. servicing it ourselves. So everyone thinks that you build, you build, you build, you get the, you know, the golden egg of mm -hmm. going into one of the retailers direct. And actually, then you have to work harder because they don't look after it as well as you can. No one ever will. And how do you handle that? You, I think if it was me, I'd have a slight moment of panic that I yeah. have achieved the golden ticket or golden egg status. Yeah. Did you have a moment of panic? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, at that stage we had taken on another person and it was Christmas and the orders are not coming through because mm. there's a there's a piece of jargon called a planogram, which is how supermarkets set up their shelves. It's almost like a an architectural plan of where everything goes. Mm. And because we had gone in through one of the accelerator programs, we didn't have a place on the plan. So we were kind of in no man's land of, no, no, you still have to do all the hard work of going to the stores. We'll just bring it there for you. Right. And that was a big learning curve and one that we took to every single retailer launch since then. So one of our big things is perfect execution on launch. And if you do that well, you usually do well for the rest of the of the of the period. If you don't, it could be the ruination of the brand. And how much help, if any, do you have or is there out there for things like the perfect execution of your plan? Is it entirely up to you as the founder or how did you handle that? Either I'm a big believer in having mentors. Okay. So yeah. I have an advisory board, I have my own board, and then I recruit consultants in specifically because my background is beauty therapy, that's what I excel at. Ask me to talk about ingredients, no problem. Formulations, still outside my zone. That's a cosmetic chemist that I need. So for me, I align myself with people and I'm really comfortable in knowing what I'm good at and what they're great at. And then hopefully together we can, I suppose, come to an agreement. And there's usually battles and that's where you learn. Mm -hmm. So they kind of tell you the truth and then you realise what you need to do the next time. So it is, it is tough, definitely. But in terms of once you have, uh, so you've got the product, you're ready to go, you have an agreement negotiated with, uh, X amount of retailers. Um, what does that relationship involve when you're fortunate enough to to acquire it and, and to engage in it? Because um, it sounds like maybe it was just the Christmas rush, Samuel, but it sounds like you weren't getting a lot of help there at the start. You were in this no man's land. 
exactly the same. Mm. Um, mentors, uh, mentors initially, mostly people who are just willing to help, you know, and not for any money for me anyway. Right. Um, you know, now I have strategic advisors, advisors that are on the payroll and I have a board as well. But at that stage, it's really just going to help. people who have done it before and asking for advice, mm. you know. Um, I was literally reaching out to people that I admired in the industry, some people I had connections to, some people I didn't. And, uh, you know, LinkedIn was the best tool ever. I remember reaching out to uh, one of the innocent founders to, you know, have a coffee to just see how they did what they did. And, and I ended up having the coffee and it was unbelievably beneficial because usually all of these entrepreneurs who have, made and done what they set out to do and have kind of, you know, semi-retired, they're really, really interested and willing to have conversations. And I sweated that, like, a lot. Mm. Um, now it's different. Now you're expected to come as a tour de force with all the tools in the box. So whether they're a consultant or whether it's a specific hire, one of our most recent investments has been around this idea of category. Category is essentially the science around the um, placement of different things in the store to increase value and volume. So there are specific data and insights people who can help you build the perfect store. And the perfect store is your things, but also other people's things as well. And if you can't be unbiased, the retailers don't really want to talk to you because they want to know how you in collaboration with that brand and that brand can benefit the store. Mm. So you almost have to become, you know, an unbiased consultant for your customer when you get to a certain stage. And that's kind of, you know, where we're at at the minute. Right. I think you're ask. right, though. I yeah. think it is reaching out to people that you feel you shouldn't or you couldn't. But, like, I did the same. So I reached out to global leaders of skincare and just happened to chance my arm and they do reply because like you say they're at a stage there where they're winding down or they sold on so and you really like well, if they see the hunger in you yeah. they'll they'll help what um, kind of people did you reach Kate out to Kate Somerville will be a large one who had just sold her brand to Unilever she's been quite um, she's been she's really assisted me I sat on a panel recently with Joe Malone and it was like 10 minutes in I was like hello Joe would you like to mentor me um, so it's not that she mentors but <laughs> nice. it's just it's great yeah. to have someone that you can just ask right what would you do and mm. and it's not that it's a constant it's just having the reassurance that you know you're making the right decisions because nobody's equipped to do this well by themselves. You have no. to lean on others. And I'm sure those mentors have uh, steered you in the right direction on many occasions, but uh, even without the mentors, have there been any occasions where you've gotten something very wrong or even an occasion where you've had a wobble to the point of thinking, oh my God, I don't think I can do this. 100%. And I suppose the main question that you're asking me here today is how do you get the product to sell through? So I had designed Cleanse Off Mitt about six years ago now, I think it was. I had the idea, I knew the product, I had done a little bit of market research, skincare was my, my game, I felt really confident. Perhaps slightly cocky because I decided I would just put it on shelves and it would just vamoose and you know they'd sell millions and millions because mm. people should know that wipes are not great for your skin mm -hmm. but it was a complete lack of ignorance and an absolute oversight on my behalf didn't have a business plan didn't have mentors was doing it all from my boyfriend at the time's bedroom sending it out it right. was just no execution no strategy and it didn't do well and it completely flopped and we had put all of our money for our mortgage that were our house at the time mm -hmm. into this 
20,000 myths. Um, yeah, big stakes. Because that was a learning curve. Mm. So I suppose, yes, have I made a mistake? Yes, I haven't stopped to plan. I foolishly thought I knew. And now what that really taught me was, first of all, you really have to research. You have to have a business plan. You need to know who your distributor is going to be, if any. Do you want to go direct? Do you not want to go direct? What's your margin? It just gives you the time to stop, to breathe, to understand. It's a bigger piece. And the pull-through is the hardest. Mm. I don't know if you agree, but you can get you can make the most amazing product. You can feel that you know who it's for. But if you don't have the support or the alliance of the shop or the store that you're working with, it's it's not going to move. And skincare, same mm. as food. There are just copious amounts of brands. So why would anyone, why would an end user want my brand? But otherwise, why, or similarly, why would a pharmacy owner want to try and promote my brand? So creating, a, I suppose, a support network, collateral online, digital assets online, um, webinars that I have my head of education do I go in and do certain amount of stores per annum as in do an event with them um, then I have my Nerdettes everything's branded so at my team Nerdettes go in and do events at store level mm. um, helping them with social media that's the part that has actually helped to ensure that not only does it get into brilliant locations sit in the right position but ultimately it's going to be seen and then and bought and sold okay. and loved and then repurchased which is another another challenge making sure that someone loves your product enough to replenish it constantly. Okay, and just something Jennifer touched on there, Samuel, in terms of, uh, you know, why would a pharmacy or a retailer choose to back you? You have some big news yourself of people choosing to back you, uh, your Series A to the tune of 18 million. Yeah. You must be pretty happy. Yeah, uh, incredibly happy. Mm. Um, it's an incredibly, you know, positive compliment that uh, not only do people want to back you and partner with you to advise in the future growth, but also give you a big sum of money to do so, you know. And um, what's the plan? Um, the plan is growth. Um, we genuinely believe that we can be, you know, the next household staple brand um, for food of trust in a global market. Um, our two biggest potential markets are the UK and the US. Um, the UK we, we entered two years ago. So we're reaching a level there now where we need to make a further investment to grow the team, communicate more to the consumer and, you know, put a lot of investment into R&D to make sure that we can keep bringing out these exciting, innovative products as well as back up the ones that we have. In the US, it's all about <clears throat> launch. So we kind of broke ground in the market in June and we've started, you know, uh, distributing across, I think, you know, within the year we'll probably be across 3,000 outlets. We're in about, you know, two thirds of those at the moment. And it's a huge cost of doing business over there. Um, ultimately, before you get on the shelf, you have to make the investment. Okay. Here, it was all about organic growth. Up until now in the UK, it's been about organic growth. And now we're going to catalyze that. So we run the business very much more similarly to a tech business versus a food business. And that's because we're a food marketing company. We're not a manufacturer. We control that and we develop the recipes and we do um, a lot of hands-on pieces in the manufacturing process. But actually, we're just a functional team of people that are communicating to the outside and making sure that everything is 100%. And that aspect of it, the functional team that's good at communicating, that must have been pretty important when you were on that 
trek on that road trying to get the funding. Like yeah. I'd imagine Series A funding doesn't exactly fall into your lap. Was it? Was that a grueling yeah. experience trying to secure that? Yeah, I mean it. Uh, it's taken the last nine months. Uh, we started doing um, initially what they call a no deal road show, where you go out to the. Um, we specifically wanted to raise. Uh, private equity um, minority funding from a select group of people who we thought could definitely catalyze the business. The money market is is very buoyant at the moment and there's a lot of, because of the um, lower, you know, zero interest rates essentially, a lot of, you know, high wealth individuals are looking to put their money into fast growth businesses that'll give them a relatively short term big return. We didn't want the quick in and out or the quick, you know, uh, end game in four years and kind of get in to sell. We have this longer term plan, um, which is quite difficult when you're talking to investors who are looking for a shorter return. So it took us a long time to find the right people. And we ended up doing a roadshow of about... 20 different private equity partners before we found the one that fit. Does it dent uh, your confidence when you're getting no's in the early days? Uh, it did and it didn't. I mean, ultimately, we we brought, we went to kind of, you know, the A-star groups to start off with. And, you know, as a worst case scenario, we knew that we could move down through the tiers of, of uh, quality and eligibility. We never had to leave that, that tier. So uh, both the people that we chose and where we got it from was exactly what we set out to do. So we're super proud about that. You know, it's a global firm with, you know, incredibly uh, great previous success. And they pick disruptors um, and founders in particular, and that suited everything that we wanted. But the, the rejection, the rejection is definitely stifling. You know, nothing, nothing is ever perfect in business, so you can learn to deal with that soon. And, and what about you, Jennifer? Because I'd imagine uh, skincare isn't exactly an, an undersaturated market. When you started out, you must have heard a lot of no's as well. I'm fortunate that because within the sector in Ireland, I had a name, I suppose, within beauty therapy to be a, like a leading trainer. And then that translated into having a profile online. It was Snapchat at the time. So I was fortunate in ways that I had a database already. So people, like how the Cleanse Off Myth started was it had been the failure. It had been the massive learning. Parked it. I put the myths in everybody's attic that I'd met. Mm. Um, I think that's when I met you first, Sam. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with it. And then because of my profile, my mom and dad said, would you like to actually maybe bring the myths and start selling them because I want your old bedroom back. You moved out 14 years ago. It'd be lovely to have it. And so we started selling it, as many founders do, from the kitchen table. Right. My son was cycling up and down to Unpust, bringing out the packages. So I had, I suppose, I, I really learned the market that way. I learned who my best alliances were. I understood what it was like to, we didn't have a distributor at the time. We were doing it ourselves. So that was a massive learning. Um, so getting no's, yeah, we've had a couple of no's, but I've been fortunate that the people that I've hit for or targeted for, we've said yes to, who are now in talks with pretty, global brands abroad and it's looking promising nothing is signed yet I don't believe anything until it's signed um, so yeah please God we won't get too many no's but there's been no's in many other parts of life whether you sacrifice your sure. personal life or not so yeah you definitely do learn Amazing. Okay, well, we're almost out of, out of time for this particular aspect of the conversation, but I want to wrap up this section with one question. If I was starting off a business tomorrow, a product, any product, be it food, skincare or whatever, 
and I came to you guys as mentors and you were to give me one piece of advice for the road ahead, what would it be? I would say stop, plan, research, then execute. Very good. Yeah, um, I think mine's pretty similar. I, I, I usually tell everybody to 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 plan twice and, and do once. Um, but another very important part, which is often missed, is that... Um, if you're going to be doing a business which you're going to have to pour, you know, 80 to 100 hours in a week, just make sure that you like doing it. <laughs> it's, um, you know, a lot of people pick jobs and stagnate in jobs that they don't like for a long period of time. Entrepreneurs do that too. And sometimes pride keeps you in because you've started something that hasn't gone that well and you don't question yourself of why it hasn't gone that well. And it's usually because you're not that into it yourself uh, I think that's really important and it also comes out in in, um, in in your passion when you do love it Okay, thank you so much Samuel and Jennifer and don't go anywhere because we're going to come back to you in just a few moments for the one to watch what's caught your eye in business this week Now in 2008 my next guest was broke and unemployed in London thanks to the recession In 2018 however he won European Entrepreneur of the Year not a bad 10 year career trajectory His company now operates in 25 different countries and they're eyeing up an IPO for early next year It's the founder of prepaid financial services Noel Moran Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. So Noel, thank you so much for joining us here on All In. And I want to start right at the beginning with you, because on the surface level, it seems like your startup story is a wildly successful one. But I know that you had a pretty rocky start. Tell us about the beginning, the idea from the conception right through to the execution. And it all began in that flat in Paddington. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me, Yvonne. So yeah, it started about 12 years ago. Um, I was working for another payments company in London, um, and that was at the time of the crash. They went into administration, so I left there, and um, I decided to set up my own gig, I guess. And that was the start of prepaid financial services. It was working from home at that stage, working from a kitchen table from the flat in Paddington. I eventually convinced my girlfriend at the time, Valerie, to come on board and work for us um, for nothing, I might add. So she left her, her well-paid job working with Aviva to come and work for us from the kitchen table. And I guess that was the start of it. So our, our idea was around uh, prepaid cards, debit cards. That was what we started out doing. Our target market was small to medium-sized corporates. So, you know, going back 12 years, if you, if you look at the landscape in the UK, we started off in the UK, um, a lot of corporates would have had needs for cards for travel, for example, for corporate expenses, for per diem, for rewards, for gift, loads of different uh, reasons. And the banks weren't really servicing that area. So even though that the previous company had failed, they had a slightly different model. I still thought there was a business opportunity in it. So we said, well, let's give it a go for six or 12 months and see how it goes. And that was the start of it. It must have been a pretty rocky six or 12 months, especially with your girlfriend roped in for free. Yeah, it was rocky, all right. Yeah. But I guess that was part of it. But the other part was we didn't have any money as well. So I was also after working for that company and I hadn't got paid for the previous mm. four or five months. Um, so it was a difficult time all around, I guess. It was right in the middle of the crash. It was the worst possible time to start up a business. 
Um, so yeah, there were a lot of hairy moments. It was difficult trying to set something up when you had no money. You know, you were always trying to stay a month ahead or a couple of weeks ahead of the game. You were trying to get a client and get some money off them so we could try and develop the proposition and develop the offering. But lucky enough, we managed to stay in business in the early days and we developed it from there. And how did you push yourself into that idea at the time? I mean, obviously, it's one thing to have an idea, a good idea, a timely idea. But with the recession just kicking off and getting into full swing, it must have been pretty scary to take that first step. Yeah, it was. But sometimes that's where the opportunity is, you know. Mm. And I was definitely convinced I had worked in cards and payments all my life. I worked with all the banks in the UK and Ireland in credit cards and debit cards. So I, I had a fair idea of what the offering was from the banks. I knew there was a need for the product. I guess that the, you know, the, the main problem we had was trying to get people aware of our offering and aware of the company. We were unknown in them days and no one knew about us. So I had some initial contacts in the space uh, and that's where we started. So the difficulty was always just trying to get one or two clients to come on board, get a little bit of credibility. You know, we didn't even have an office. We had a table we were working mm. from. So yeah. eventually we had to move from the table to a very small office to give the business some credibility, you know. And what was that like when you did get those first one or two initial clients? It must have been quite the return on the investment in yourself, I suppose, even psychologically to get that confidence boost. Yeah, the first one, I mean, that there weren't massive corporates back those days. There were small to medium-sized corporates, but the first one was certainly obviously a key turning point. I think we were just about at the stage where we couldn't even pay the rent on the small mm -hmm. office. By this stage, we'd moved into a small office. We stayed and we worked from the uh, kitchen table for about four months and then we had to get an office for credibility. So we moved into a small three-man office in Hanover Square. We were trying to dodge the rent for the first three or four months. So we were about at the stage where we couldn't dodge the landlord anymore and we had to get uh, a customer. And lucky enough, we did get one about three or four months into it. We got one and they paid us. I think they ordered about 5,000 cards up front. They paid us for them up front. That allowed us to pay the rent. And we were able to stay in business for another two or three months off the back of that alone. And then eventually we just got other corporates coming on board and it was really the same model then from there on. I think people, when they're hearing about success stories of companies like yours, uh, and it all seems glamorous and lovely and amazing, and they tend to forget the very real struggles at the start. Um, and then they hear about what you're describing there, dodging the landlord, um, that's certainly what we would describe here on All In as going all in. Was there a backup plan? Did yourself and, and Valerie in that three-man office discuss what happens if we get to a point where we can't pay the rent and there are no clients? No, there was no backup plan. Definitely right. not. The backup plan was go and get a full-time job and that was it. Um, so there was no backup plan. Had we not succeeded, then the business wouldn't be where it is today. We would have we would have folded up, we would have had to stop, mm. uh, we wouldn't have had money to uh, to keep going. So there was no backup plan. The backup plan would have been go and get a full-time job. Right. Or succeed at all costs, I well, suppose. That's it, yeah. exactly. So. Um, and in terms, of, in terms of the timing of you setting up your business, had there been no financial crash or had it not happened at that time, what do you think um, Noel Moran's career trajectory would have been? Would you still be happily working full-time in finance or would you? did you have the bug? Would you eventually have gone out on your own anyway, do you think? 
That's a very good question. It's hard to know. You know, sometimes when you think life deals you different deals along the way, and then when you look back on them two or three years later, you know, at the time you think, you know, when that company I worked for went into administration, you know, I didn't have long to think about it. I just said, let's give it a go, you know. Had the company not went into administration, they could probably have been in the position that PFS are in today. I would probably still be there working for them. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you never know. Sometimes uh, life takes different turns and five or six months or a couple of years down the line, they're for the better and you think they're for the worse at the time, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and one thing that's very interesting about your company is um, a fintech that bootstrapped. Tell me about the decision to just kind of keep at it yourself and, and, and not chase any investment. What was the thinking there? Well, the decision was made for us in the early days suppose, because yeah. uh, in, the, in the downturn, we, we did try and get money. We, I remember going out trying to raise just 300 grand, 500 grand. Then it was a million, a million and a half. And we just couldn't get it. There was just no money around. No, was, no one was investing back in. Um, in those days, it was the exact opposite. People were selling down their stock. They didn't know there was no certainty in what was happening, uh, particularly in London. So it was absolutely impossible to raise money in those days. So that was the first two, two and a half years. Um, so we had no choice but to keep going ourselves. I guess we're lucky insofar as our business is prepaid. So by default, we are getting paid for a lot of the work up front. Um, and that also gives an opportunity then to run the business off the back of that cash flow. Um, and then there just came a point where we didn't need investment anymore. Three or four years in, we actually didn't need investment. Uh, the business is profitable. We've been profitable now for 12 years in a row. Mm. Um, so the only reason why we'd need investment now would be if we did an acquisition or, 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 or something like that. And you may have, I suppose, accidentally bootstrapped yourself. But what are your views on bootstrapping generally? If you were starting off again today and maybe no recession, maybe there would be um, more funds more readily available learning what you've learned now from the journey, do you think you'd bootstrap or would what would you do? I think it depends on the type of business you have, you know. I mean, there's obviously pros and cons. The, the other pro of that now is we still own the company. Um, the downside, of course, when you take an investment and when you take it in early is that you're giving away a lot of your equity. So, you know, for entrepreneurs that come up with their own idea, try to develop their own company, okay, it's a chicken and egg scenario, they need money, but... You kind of have to balance up the books with how much money do I take in, how much equity do I give away. I still need to have a fairly significant interest in this if I'm going to be the, you know, the controller of the business going forward. So it's very difficult to get that balance. I, th I think it really comes down to what is the right time to take in money. And maybe it's not always necessarily on day one, you know. Mm -hmm. And you're approaching another big milestone now uh, with talk of an IPO, and I think you said in, in Q2 of next year. Um, that's a, just like bootstrapping, I suppose, is another, another thing that's um, always the subject of fierce debate to IPO or not, the pros and the cons. Um, I guess you're leaning towards the pros if it's something you're seriously thinking about. Tell me about that. Yeah, so we definitely gave it a lot of uh, serious thought and we put a lot of work into it and we probably would have liked to have actually done it this year in Q3, Q4, but the problem at the moment is Brexit and the amount of uncertainty, particularly in the UK market. Mm. Um, so it's just impossible to do anything around an IPO at the moment. We've done a lot of the work. We've advisors on board. We've spent six months working on it. So we're probably 50% of the way through it. Um, but under the current climate, we've got to put it on hold and we'll probably pick it up again in Q1 and maybe do something in Q2 of next year. But I guess the thinking behind it was... 
you know, the only reason why we would do an IPO, two reasons really, I guess there, there comes a point in time where the turnover was growing significantly in the business. Uh, this year we'll turn over in excess of 100 million euros, so it's becoming a significant business. Um, I guess an IPO, there's a couple of reasons why you do it. Number one, it probably allows us to take some cash off the table for all the hard work we've put in over the last 12 years. But more importantly, it gives you access to capital as well too, fairly quickly if you wanted to do some acquisitions next year or over the coming years. And IPOing um, in a Brexit stressed market, presumably a little bit different than IPOing at any other time. Uh, how big a worry is Brexit for you and for other fintech companies at the moment? Well, for us as a regulated entity, it is or certainly was a huge worry. You know, we were operating out of the UK under a UK licence. Um, so we had to go and look for a licence in another country. We worked with the Central Bank here in Ireland over the course of a year and a half, two years, and we finally got our licence um, last year. Um, so we have a backup plan now, but... Um, you know, it does mean you're running two separate businesses now. You have two separate regulated entities. You have one to do business in the UK and you have one for the rest of Europe. So, you know, that doubles your costs. It doubles your workforce in some mm -hmm. departments. There's, there's also downsides to it. So, you know, in an ideal scenario, we wouldn't have wanted this. Um, we wouldn't have wanted to end up where we are. But um, you never know where it might end up yet, you know. And even in terms of the planning that must go into that, you're operating in two different markets there, as you've described, but you must kind of be operating in two different mindsets or two different hypotheticals at the moment as well. Do you have to consider and plan and strategize for a world where Brexit does happen, a world where it happens with a deal or no deal, or maybe even a world where it doesn't happen? Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly the point, you know. I mean, ideally, obviously, it's easier for the business if everything is under one entity and one regulated yeah. entity. Now we're 44 days away from potentially you know, having to move all that business across to a non-UK regulated entity. But at the same time, there's no certainty that that's going to happen. It could be pushed out to January. It may end up in another referendum. It may never happen. Mm. You know, it's so uncertain at the moment. But yeah, we have to plan for both scenarios. We have already started to convert customers across now to the Irish regulated entity. But we only started that process last month, you know. Mm. We were obviously holding off until we we've seen or we had at least more certainty around what would happen but because that doesn't seem to be coming we have to make sure that we're not left exposed on the 31st of October so 85% of our business is outside the UK it's European business so we actually have to move 85% of our business over to the regulated entity in Ireland. Right I'd say that uh, can cause some sleepless nights. It's a lot of customers yeah it's a lot of work there's there's thousands of customers which are non-UK that have to be moved across so that impacts across a lot of areas within the business absolutely it's time consuming. Mm. Well another thing that I know can cause uh, founders some sleepless nights is scaling and next week's uh, episode of All In actually will be completely about scaling the how the when uh, and the why and so on. I'm interested to get your views on scaling um, any advice for people out there wondering when's the good time to scale, how to do it? Again, it's hard to know. I mean, it, it depends, you know. If you have the business opportunity in front of you and you have the business, you've got to seize the opportunity. Mm. Um, simple as that. So I think sometimes, you know, it's determined for you when you have to scale. There's no point scaling if the, the product or the business is not there, you know, or the product is not required by a consumer or an end user. So... I think in a lot of instances that the, um, scaling will be determined for you depending on the demand for the product or the service you're selling. 
you know, in our case, we're still a relatively small company. You know, we've got 240 odd staff across three or four different locations, but that's still very small in the scheme of things. We're still a, a small business, but we plan to grow. We plan to grow outside Europe. And listen, when the opportunities are there in front of you, you just need to seize them and take them. If you don't, someone else will or one of your competitors will, you know. And you've taken those opportunities as they've arisen in the last 10 years. But what about the Noel of 10 years from now? What does the future look like for you? <laughs> Not as busy, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe we'll have at least cashed out part of the business. Maybe we're not as involved in it in 10 years' time. Um, you know, the day when you wake up and you're not enjoying it, as I always say, is probably the day you need to look at packing it in. Mm. Uh, now, that doesn't seem to be happening any time in the near future. I still enjoy it. I love it. Every morning is different. Every day is different. And uh, no two are the same. So I'd imagine I'll still be involved for the foreseeable future anyway. But in 10 years time, I'd like to think that, you know, you might be less involved than you are at the moment. And someone else may have taken it over and take it to a different scale. What about other projects? Because you've, you've got, obviously got two businesses at the moment. Um, will there be a third? Will there be other things you'd like to pursue? Well, you never know. You know, we did an innovation fund there uh, two years ago. We did a one million pound innovation fund and that was very interesting. We invested into various different businesses as well. Um, that kind of complemented the services we have or that could be bolted on to our offering. Um, and one or two of those are coming to fruition as well. So... You know, there's plenty of opportunities, I guess. It depends, you know, it depends what you want to do. There's loads of projects. We'd like to build a, a fintech centre. We're working on a fintech project with the local council in Mead as well, too. We'd like to get that off the ground. It's advancing. That would be a significant project as well. So there's a lot of things going on. Well, Brexit or no Brexit, you won't be bored anyway by the sounds no, of we'll it. we'll have plenty to keep us going, all right, yeah. Well, Noel, thank you so much for joining us and all the best. No problem. Thanks for having me. Noel Moran there, who is himself one to watch, absolutely, in the coming months. But ones to watch from you guys in the meantime. Jennifer, ladies first, I'm going to start with you. What is catching your eye in business at the moment? I was sitting on a panel recently where it was a pitch for business. And the person that really stood out to me, actually it's a duo, so it's two sisters, the Spotlight Teeth Whitening Sisters. So they're dentists by profession. Again, they notice a niche in the market to have um, a certain ingredient that you can put onto the enamel of the tooth and for it not to cause any damage for the teeth to appear whiter. But they've just signed phenomenal contracts in the US, Target and Ulta. They're rolling out in the, in the new year. So just hats off. I sat with them on a panel years ago on an entrepreneur programme and just have seen them grow and grow and think they're lovely people that deserve well. But they work, like you said, Sam, they work 80, 100 hours a week and just are ready to, I suppose, fly the flag abroad. Great. Yourself? Mine would have to be um, brand friends of mine, uh, Cali Cali. Um, from the the creators of uh, the Fulfill brand. Mm. Uh, they launched uh, just at the start of the month. We were lucky enough to be part of their collaboration in the um, uh, on Grafton Street at the weekend. And they've just got, you know, they've, they've launched two simultaneous categories, which, you know, I haven't seen done before. And the quality of the product is great. The guys are, you know, some of the best entrepreneurs around. Do you know you're the second person to have Cali Cali in there, one to watch really? in just a few weeks on this programme? One so to watch. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they must be. Thank you so much for that. Thank Jennifer you. Rock of The Skin Nerd and, of course, Samuel Dennegan from Strong Roots. Thanks for being with us. 
And thanks to our partners in AIB for backing All In. Now on next week's episode, it's all about the pivot, knowing when's the right time to change course completely and successfully implement a whole new strategy for your business. And in the All In Trailblazer hot seat, we'll be joined by the man whose healthcare supplements are making waves in Ireland, the UK and beyond. It's Galway entrepreneur Dahi O'Connor of Revive Active. In the meantime, you can contact us as always by using the hashtag All In Business and please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business.